Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Derek Street. Derek is the co-founder and CEO of DexCare, a data-driven intelligence company that makes healthcare access better for everyone. He is an accomplished healthcare technology entrepreneur and executive, having co-founded and or led six venture-backed companies, including three in health tech and four acquired by public companies. Prior to joining Providence as an entrepreneur in residence to commercialize DexCare, Derek served as vice president of digital solutions at Johnson & Johnson, after it acquired his surgical AI company, CSATS. Derek is also actively involved in national healthcare data transparency efforts for the improvement of patient care as a co-founder and board member of two leading data sharing organizations, PedsNet and Improving Renal Outcomes Collaborative. Welcome, Derek. Good to see you. Thanks. Good to see you, Sean. We're going to start with some rapid fire. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Okay. I'm curious if you are watching something or listening to something or reading something that you're kind of into right now that you want to share. Hmm. Well, uh, so I am reading something right now, but I will admit I am much more of a TV junkie. Uh, the readers in our family are my wife and daughter, uh, but I am reading um, Team of Teams uh, written by General Stanley, Stanley McChrystal, who was head of the Joint Operations Command against um uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq uh, about twenty years ago, and it's really it's a really cool take on how you just get kind of distributed leadership and get things done without doing it in a top down um, hierarchy. The more fun stuff I'm doing is um, I'm really into this show Yellow Jackets. Uh, we just finished Miss Maisel, which is really good as well. Love, yeah, as well. But um, yeah, yeah, like 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 those kinds of shows. Okay. And um, curious, I don't know if you're a foodie, but what's your favorite type of cuisine? Like last meal? Uh, I like, you know, being in the Northwest um, and I'm not from the Northwest, so it's odd, but being in the Northwest for long enough, you got to be into sushi. And so um, we're a big sushi family as well. And, um, you know, the cool thing about Seattle is there's so many places you can go that you, um, uh, there's a wide range of uh, uh prices to get sushi in this uh in this uh city which is important when you have two kids that devour it as well so yeah exactly the sushi place for my wife and i and then we have the kids sushi place and there's all so tell me your favorite sushi spot for like splurge um 
Um, there's one actually pretty close to our office. Uh, we just got super lucky on Eastlake called, um, uh, it's, it's like, it's like Tapumaki, I think. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's right on Eastlake. It's, it's like three blocks away from the zoo tavern, which is the okay. other end of the spectrum, but it's super good. I didn't even know about it until I got here. And... Oh, I think I've actually been there before. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I love it. Exactly. Um, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? I just did this in a um, an event that we held the other day, actually, with, with customers. Um, that's funny, the same question. Uh, what I said was, I'd love to stop time. Uh, but I would have a whole, I would have a lot of like caveats I would put on it. So, you know, I'd want to be able to um, have other people uh, stop it with me, but be in the same reality at the same time. So I wouldn't just be alone because that'd be kind of boring. What traits do you most value in an employee? Uh, you know, um, we're going through this right now too, actually in the company with the values exercise. Uh, I really think that you've got to be super passionate and committed to what you're working on. Um, I think that that ends up trumping just about everything, you know, technical skills can be learned. And I just mean, I just don't, I don't mean just technology skills, but kind of the technical aspects of anything I yeah. think can be learned. It's really, you've got to, you know, almost be kind of, you know, committed to the point where you're legion to focus on, you know, solving a really big problem. It's, it's why I do the things that I do in my career um, because, you know, th they're usually not the path that's, that's easiest traveled. And so you've got to have that level of, Commitment and passion about what you're doing to um, to try to solve a solve a, a challenging problem that has has big impact. That's probably the most important thing. Um, that makes sense because it does trump everything else, right? You're like if you if you start with that core thing, mm -hmm. and it kind of like almost just easily translates to you would assume to drive and grit because if you're passionate, then all those other things kind of follow from there. Yeah, um, it does, it does yeah. end up supporting a lot of things, you know, and and. And it's interesting because sometimes it can be, it can be misconstrued uh, by folks as as like also being synonymous with you know well if I'm passionate about things and I'm just kind of run unfettered at something and so it's really easy. I, I've been guilty of this in my career you know you kind of run at something and so you think you know, hey I'm so passionate about this I'm so committed you know I've got it figured out I don't need to like listen to somebody else I don't need to learn something I can just run at it and that's that's the hard part, right? Because then if you really are committed to solving something, then you eventually realize that you actually do need a lot of help because we're all we're all limited in what we can do individually. And so it's usually got to be kind of tempered with that as well. And, and um, you know, with just some kind of humility that you right. work together to, to, to solve big, big problems, specifically because you're so passionate about it that you could kind of, you know, fly off the planet in the wrong direction. If, uh, right. Like the counter, the counterpart, or I'm thinking almost like that when sometimes when people say passionate, I almost get like a dreamy, like the person who's just kind of almost not flighty passionate, but just yeah. kind of like out there passionate where they're, yeah. there's like, they're lacking maybe the discipline and rigor around the passion. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, focused. Yeah. yeah. Focused. Yeah. Um, what is your biggest fear? Mm. This is the lay on the couch part. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we were talking when we just, we were talking about kids earlier right um uh you know that's probably as a parent right we can all relate to it i mean it's the uh, it's that you know it's that you don't do enough 
you know, for your kids to ultimately just end up happy, yeah, <laughs> happy you, just, you, you know, yeah. happy with life and what they're doing with new and whatever they do. And, and, um, you know, whether it's activities they're involved in when they're younger and, you know, how hard you push or not, or, or opportunities you provide them or, you know, going too far, you know, you know, and providing them too many opportunities or things too easily that could lead to behaviors down the road. You don't want, I mean, there's all these things that, um, I probably think about it way too much. I, parenting has become so crazy. It's just yeah. nuts. Well, yeah. childhood is so hard these days that of course this is going to be something that torments you. And it's such a, um, such a testament to you as a person that this is that you're thinking about this too much. It's right? the hardest. It's the hardest thing I, I, ever. I, it's it's ever. the hard. It's the hardest thing. You know, if 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 life was just you know coming into the office and building companies and you know doing those kinds of things, it would be. Well, you've clearly got that part figured out. I end up thinking though to the point of like uh, to the point of like, well, but what are, what are the actions that we're taking? you know, in our house every day that, oh. and, and where do they lead to down the road? And so like an example would be, um, so I am a, this is going to sound a little, a little neurotic here, but, but I'm of the mind uh, uh, that, you know, if you, that one of the things you should do every morning is you should make your bed. Is it the one thing you can come back to at the mm -hmm. end of the day saying, you know, even if it's a bad day, I've accomplished this thing. And, yeah, you set the and, tone so, for the day. and so I tried like, instill this in my kids and my 11 year old like looks at me like I'm like I don't know what I'm talking about like like how in the world could making your bed have any impact at all on my day of playing my day of getting this homework done my day of doing them going to the baseball game my day of this or that and so you know I just but I think as as parents like um those little things like those little things, you're so intimately connected to the the little the little things that happen, you know, in your loved one's life every day. I mean, thousands of these things, thousands of them. Mm -hmm. That that um, if you sit and think about it too long, right, uh, you can start to get at least I can start to get to a point where I'm like, you know, well, if I didn't, if I don't really stress, you know, this thing or taking care of this pet or whatever it is, that could be the thing right that yeah oh that's interesting. down the road but right? you're setting no, you're setting the tone for that. that's so yeah. interesting yeah i do think though what you're saying though is that you want to just make sure that you're um leaving a legacy of strong values and guiding your children in the way that keeps them emotionally healthy which is yeah. hard to do but you're it sounds like you're probably, okay what's your biggest pet peeve um pet peeve or a pet peeve. I'm not yeah, I was going to say biggest. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what is a pet peeve? Uh, you know, um, I would say uh, there there are some, there are some, <laughs> some that comes back to kids. You just sort of just like basic things, right? I mean, uh, uh, again, I have an 11 and 16 year old and uh, they will very easily walk out of the house with, you know, two different colored socks on or mm. hair not combed or, you know, oh, I'll just put a hat on over it and just stuff it in there and it'll be, it'll be, it'll be fine. You know, those kinds of things. Um, just things that seem like pretty basic societal norms to me are tough for me to, um, to, to take a step back at sometimes and realize that, you know, these are, these are, these are, these are little growing humans that um will eventually take some time to get those kinds of things but it doesn't stop from annoying me when you know when people aren't just doing the basics especially those those in my family right you're like just like 
take care of yourself. Should be Just, easy. Should yeah. be easy. <laughs> Keep it simple. Yeah. So you mentioned when we were talking, you're like, I'm not from Seattle. Yeah. So I know you went to school, um, University of Iowa. Iowa. Are you from yeah. Iowa? Yeah. Born and raised in Iowa, small river town. Uh, southeast corner of the state um, family have still still family back there. I was just back there a couple weeks ago. So um, bond place in my heart for Iowa. I went to school there, uh, worked in the Minneapolis or in the Midwest in Minneapolis for a little bit, then came to the West Coast about about thirty years ago. Yeah. And when you were a kid, like who did you look up to? Who were your heroes? Well, so I went through. I, you know, if I think back to when I was really young, I don't, I don't really recall then. Um, you know, I guess the two that I'd point out, uh, I'll start with the kind of the more, uh, uh, the more, um, I don't know, kitschy one. Um, you know, so I, I made a, I made a, I, I was just, I just really got interested in like finance when I was in, um, kind of freshman year in high school, and so I started. Uh, doing finance things, I got my broker's license when I was still pretty young and 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 in school, and and uh, I you know I just I looked up to, uh, well unfortunately I looked up to all these like Wall Streeters that turned out yeah. to be total villains like Michael Milken people Milken exactly, and then there was like the the movie version of you know oh the, yeah Gordon Gecko right just all of yeah. the uh, people that you know not all of them but some of them turned out to be villains, and so that was probably not the best thing. But I was really I, I looked up to them as. Um, uh, just the, 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 the world they were involved in were so complicated and kind of numbers driven that, um, they just really intrigued me. Um, uh, so that's where I just, at least spent a lot of time kind of, you know, reading about and learning about those folks. It wasn't all the crooks, by the way. Did you um, look at Warren Buffett too? Uh, Warren Buffett, you know, being in the Midwest, you've got to connect there. Um, the other thing, the other, probably the more important one though, is that, um, my parents got divorced when I was, uh, when I was, uh, you know, kind of middle school age and, and I ended up living with my dad and I just always looked up to my, to my father and he was, he's made me what I am. And so he's been an inspiration on a, a number of fronts for me. And, and, um, and he's probably the main person that I spent the most time with and have the most respect for even to this day. Yeah. And is he in financial services? No, my dad was, a. Uh, my dad was a very kind of had a career that you don't really see anymore. He was a same same company his entire life. He after he he went to Vietnam and then after he got back uh, doing a tour there, he, he got his 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 um, his his college degree, and then he worked for a company that started out as uh, General Foods and became Kraft Foods and then became Philip Morris. And basically, he was a traveling salesman, and so mm. he. He would uh, he would he covered a couple of states in the Midwest and would drive to grocery stores and and you know sell product basically to those organizations. Um, uh, and it was just I loved it growing up with that kind of a background because he was such a hard worker. And I have these very fond memories as a kid where you know he would just some days just because you know he didn't have anybody watch me or whatever. Um, um, and he'd be overnight or something. Um, you know I would uh. I would go with them on these trips, right? Or just to just to spend time together. And so we'd travel around Iowa, go in these grocery stores, and I would see him kind of working with the the buyers at these stores, you know, trying to convince them to buy, you know, his products and the competitor, you know, so many pallets of his product versus the competitor's products. And then we'd go and we'd we'd move around product on the on the shelves, you know. So so his product you would get more visibility. Yeah, it would show at the eye level and I love that. Down. So I was, you know, doing that as a kid and it was 
it was just a lot of fun and and um just a really cool role and he he did it right and was able to retire early and you know with a nice pension and again things you don't see anymore but no you do not see those you know, things so you talk about him being kind of one of your heroes or someone that you really look up to is it from a perspective of you mentioned his work ethic um or some of his is it kind of where you got some of your core values and how would you describe those and what are you doing to kind of pass those along for sure uh really good work ethic it's probably where ironically my earlier comments come from where my kind of some of my stresses come from but uh, because again really really strong work ethic, um, uh, strong focus on education, um, not like flashy education, you know, not like, Hey, you know, let's do everything we can to get you into Harvard. Not that, that if anything wrong, right, like, no, but like learning for the sake of learning, like actually, it was just like, you know, look, like figure out the things that are going to create value for somebody. Um, uh, because if you do that, then you're going to have all these opportunities open, open to you. And you can go all over the place to do that. Um, uh, uh, so he just had a really just like practical view of the world, like, like that you could like put to work. It was tangible, you know, um, it was real. Um, and so that ethic definitely helped me out a lot. And then at the same time, he was very, very family focused. Um, uh, you know, like we never, uh, other than when he had to travel, like we never missed, you know, we never missed a dinner at home, even if it was just him and me, um, we would still, you know, he'd take time out to make sure that we were you know, doing trips that, you know, road trips and so forth, um, um, to spend time together traveling and vacations and things like that. And just, just put a, put a premium on just spending time, you know, with your family as well. Um, and, uh, and then did the same kind of stuff that I was lamenting earlier, right. You know, if I was walking out of the house with my <laughs> two different socks on or my hair not combed or something like that, I'd, I'd so hear, funny. You're like, yeah. look at you, you're turning into your dad. I know I it's it. exactly what people like say. here it's and like, here we are. <laughs> it's like those, uh, those, I love those progressive commercials, those progressive insurance commercials. Cause they're like so spot on. Yeah. Right. I know yeah, it's just like, yep. We're all turning. And, and then we all turn into our parents. Exactly. I know. So how did you choose university of Iowa? Uh, I got it wrong. I know I looked at that school. Yeah, it was. Um, so, I mean, there's a few things. One, I mean, so I grew up an hour away. It was nice to have, have the connection there, but I, I, um, uh, and I should, should, should say, and, and I would say, you know, it was, uh, as far as like college rankings go, it was decent for, um, you know, business. I, I was, I went there for finance and computer science degrees, um, more, more known for finance than, uh, than computer science. Uh, uh so I, I would say it was decent. Um, uh, but, but I was able to focus on it as a, as a place to kind of do all these other practical things. So, um, I, uh, I got my, my series six license early for, for brokerage. And so I, I had a, I was able to work in Cedar Rapids, which was a town 40 minutes away at an investment management firm. Mm -hmm. I had another, um, that, that was one of my jobs. I had that was job. the Terry Lockridge and Dunn job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I also then worked at a brokerage house, uh, that was, you know, right on campus there. Um, and I was able to, uh, I was able to, um, I was able to uh, actually, you know, actually um, um, get some like the professors and other people involved uh, involved in the firm, you know, get some of their assets moved over and things like that. So it was, oh, it awesome. was like, it was just a really practical, it was a practical way for me to get an education uh, in, in a, an area that I could apply it. Right. And, 
uh, and that was um, that you just didn't have to think a lot about. Like I was very focused on how do I get to the next. Right, you're like I'm ready to work. I'm trying to go. Yeah. yeah. So and then finally, it doesn't. Have, I mean, Iowa is um, as a state. Most people know this, but Iowa as a state um, has incredibly high. Uh, graduation and standardized test scores, uh, graduation rates and standardized test scores among other states in the country. Uh, part of it's there's not a lot of people there and they focus on uh, practicality and hard work. And so mm -hmm. as a, you know, the, the denominator helps there in, in doing those kinds of calculations. Um, uh, so it was also just a good place to go to school for that. So, yeah. And so based on what you were saying, just me and my dad, are you an only child? No, I have, a, I have one sister. Uh, you have one sister. Uh, yeah, just, just one other, yeah. And is, is the whole family still in Iowa? No, so uh, father is there and he's remarried and I have some aunts and um, cousins and so forth there. And then my mom's side and sister, they're in Kentucky. Um, oh, they, wow. They kind of moved around, but have ended up settling in. They were in Seattle for a little bit where I'm at now, but have ended up back in Kentucky yeah. where they were, were earlier, so. Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah. it looks like that early, like ninth grade uh, version of yourself kind of went on and you pushed through and stayed in finance, but more on the like corporate finance, equity research. It looked like based on how you first started talking that you'd go more like trading, sales and trading. Yeah. So how did I, you decide to go corporate finance and equity research? And did you cover a certain sector? Yeah. So what, what I found was that I... um. I was even pretty early on, I was, I was pretty entrepreneurial. And, and so while I was enamored with the world of finance, uh, I wasn't so enamored with it that I needed to be that, that, that needed to be all I ever do forever. I could, I could always see a little bit forward of where I wanted to go. Cause if that was the case, then I needed to get to New York or New York. Of to course. To or London. Or, or yeah. London. Exactly. It's, it wasn't Minneapolis. Right. Um, <laughs> Not uh, Minneapolis, not Iowa. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I definitely had to get out of Iowa to do it. There's, there's insurance companies in Doing there, but that's about it. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but, but I. So I went to Dane Bosworth. It's now part of World Bank Canada uh, in Minneapolis. HQ there. They had a full trading desk. Um, so big, good size for regional. And and I just I found early on that I, I was just I was always pretty entrepreneurial, and so I wanted to get. I wanted to be interacting with companies and the best way to do that in a, in a finance way was through corporate finance. Um, mm -hmm. Commercial banking is another way to do it, but that's even more transactional trading never really appealed to me because that's, that's, that that's almost the antithesis of working with companies, right? Yeah, so, you don't touch it, it at all. Yeah, it's all about you know the company is sort of an afterthought. I it's just, just transact about yeah. the security and what's happening in the market and, Kind of macro things and i was never that way i was always like but you know let's i want to understand how you how you build a business how you how you do these things and and i had some exposure to that at at uh, terry lockridge and dunn we uh the founder of that firm also had bought some small companies in the area and so he and he was gracious enough to let me be involved in those so we had a a sandwich uh what do you call it? Like a sandwich. What do you mean like manufacturers? Like a sandwich assembler. Like this company that literally in a small town in Lone Tree, Iowa, this like 200 person town where he had this little area, this assembly line where they would make sandwiches and then package them up and sell them to convenience stores in the area. And I just, as I spent more time, uh, that CEO of that company, his name was Woody, um, I remember, um, I spent more time with people like that. I just got really enamored with building these businesses. And so corporate finance was working with the CEOs and the, the organizations there um, to help 
build their businesses. That eventually, I eventually started to see that as transactional though, which led to my entrepreneurial career, but we'll probably get into that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I love it. The very first thing I read about as far as your first company, joeaverage.com. Mm, yeah. How did you even get that name? Yeah. So that how was, was it available? I mean, I guess it was a while ago, but I'm like it was, yeah, it was web. It was like web like 20, oh point oh 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 yeah, yeah. exactly. But um, still, that's such a great name. It was cool. Yeah. So the idea we had, so this was so I did banking for a while, some people that we talked about earlier, you and I know. And then and then um uh, I just kept wanting to get closer and closer to the companies, uh corporate finance research, which allowed me to do that. And eventually I was just like, I just need to like do one of these finally. And so that was a time where, uh, believe it or not, there was a time where, um, uh, you know, if you wanted to get things, uh, particularly like deals on things, right? Whether it was, you know, you know, deals on books or you know, a coupon from a, you know, to to you know, for for you know, money off of beers at a local bar, not at a night at a local bar, whatever. Like you know, all of that stuff was um, still in like these paper on books basically on college campuses and so our idea we had was well we should like get all of those things all those deals all those coupons all those things and we should put them on this new fangled thing called the the web and the world wide web yeah exactly information superhighway and then and then uh and then students could just go and like go to pages and print this stuff off and not have to like search around to find a coupon book or whatever um you know, so and and then we had an idea to kind of aggregate as well, kind of in a Groupon style. Although this was, you know, nineteen ninety six, so it was well before that. The thing is, is you know, it was so early that um, that uh, we competed with these paper coupon books, and people were like, the paper coupon books are way easier than going to the internet, going to a computer, getting the access to this internet thing, taking three minutes to download a page, you know, with a graphic on it. You know, they were just like, I just use this coupon book and print it out. And so that didn't work out very well, but it was a, it was a good learning experience. And Joe Average, the idea behind Joe Average was that it should be stuff that every, that an average person could. Oh, yeah. Could take what happened to the name and the domain? And I don't like, know. That's a good question. Uh, we eventually sold, well, actually, I do know, we, we sold it into, um, uh, although it wasn't a particularly um, large deal, but we sold it into a company, classmates.com, which is where I, then um, spent some time at um, after after that, which was a much more successful web one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you spent six years at Classmates. I did. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean, it looks like almost all of these roles. Um, I, I did see, unless I'm not kind of seeing this pattern, but it almost seems like you come in, um, entrepreneur in residence, spin a company out, get acquired, and then you're the guy who's in like corp dev. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, but is that your special sauce? All, like, I'm like, all, you know, I feel like all CEOs have like, some are like, I'm a, I'm an actual engineer masking as a CEO, but it seems like you're BD corp dev sales. Yeah. Is that your jam? Yeah. I, it's so, so you're, you're getting some of the elements there so that we can unpack that a little bit. So, uh, so what's worked out for me, well, Shauna is, um, I'm never, I I, uh, I don't I don't have to be the one to have the idea to come up with the idea. Um, I think when people get so I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs get so focused on that it's a bit of hubris and and they just they can't see forest through the trees. There's all that. Whereas my view is 
is like there are so many smart, talented people out there uh, that um, that have great ideas, maybe have some traction on those ideas. And what they need is a, they need a catalyst to actually pull together the resources, the team, um, and then drive towards execution on a broader vision uh, to actually create something really special. And so, um, and so usually, although classmates was not this way, I'll come back to that a second. But but usually the the best place to do that I find is as an EIR inside of um, I've done it inside of a few venture firms. Um, I've done it inside of uh, a large university and like they've got all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah, I saw you did that at your dad. Yeah. Um, and then most recently I did it at a large health system that has a. Had, had and, and so, yeah. Yeah. And so, and so I've just found that. So when you ask about superpower and, and I can say this without, I, I, I think without sounding too cavalier, because I also know there's a bunch of things I'm not, that, I'm not, I'm not that good at, but the stuff that's, that I've, I've, I've found success with are, are, um, um, being able to see kind of not what something is, but what it can become, and then stitching together the things you would need to do to get there, which almost, I usually start at early stage, almost always a piece of that is I've got to get um, people smarter than us, myself included, people smarter than me involved in this pretty fast um, in these different areas. We've got to get some capital behind this. You know, I'm a believer that, you know, if you really want to try to solve big problems, you need to leverage, you need to leverage other people's money because there's just usually not enough. I mean, the the wealthiest people in the world, when they're solving big problems, they go and they they still usually don't have enough money <laughs> because they want to, they want to solve a bigger problem that requires something bigger than them to do that, which is usually other people's money or government or something like that to make something happen. And so, you know, my ability is to Again, see where something could go and what it could become, create that strategy to stitch it together. And then my job as CEO is like 99% of it's it's always uh resourcing and keeping keeping those team, the, those resources kind of focused on that bigger, that bigger, that bigger idea. The tactical then execution, if I've done my job right, ends up being done by again people that are much better at me than me. At, at doing at doing those things and 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 being inside a venture firm or a university or a or a um, or a you know large corporate uh, province is nonprofit but similar uh, you know you you just uh, uh, you're able to I found that I'm able to find the things that are so compelling that when you put that that strategy or vision around it it becomes a gravitational force for those people and resources. They want to be part of it then at that point, not because of me, but because of what this thing could actually become. And then they want to do mm -hmm. it together. And it comes back to that passion we talked about earlier, because now we're all focused on, hey, we could change the world on something here. And um, and that's that gets super exciting. Yeah, so I'm writing it down though, because I'm like, okay, so the things that you're talking about, there's a, there is a little bit of like a theme, because mm -hmm. you talk about, you know, what they all kind of do require an ability to, sell and influence because you're talking about talent acquisition basically bring bringing good people together identifying talent closing mm -hmm. them on your vision talent acquisition that's yeah. some sort of selling right fundraising getting people to give you money that's hard to do not everybody's good at that mm -hmm. um I, i'm curious to know if you enjoy that process um any advice that you have for others who have gone out to raise um mm -hmm. 
curious about your ideas around that or even your strategies around talent acquisition. And then the other part of it is almost like a different side of the brain, which is sounds like you're probably pretty strong operationally and strong with your organizational skills um, to kind of keep the wheels on the bus to keep everybody else doing what they need to do. Yeah. So a couple of things there. I mean, on the talent side, I mean, you're much more pro at it than I am. Um, and the one that that didn't work out, um, which was that Joe Average one, um, I think part of it was, I mean, I was very young and I didn't really appreciate that. Um, I just needed to have people better than me involved in that business. And it's that's not to say I'm you know, trying to move myself out of the CEO role. None of us are smart enough, resourced enough, um, good enough uh, to be able to make transfer tra truly transformative change in any domain without continually up-leveling the people that we're working with. Um, 100%. And, yeah. And and just honestly drafting all of them, right? I mean, my yeah. I have the easiest job in the world when I have the best people working, working here. And so, and so that's a key thing. On the money side, um, I mean, it did, like, it's, it's helped that I was interested in finance early on and then having a banking background. Um, it helps me on the, like the technical aspects of it. Um, you know, understanding deal structures and and how things work and negotiation and things like that. But you're right. A lot of it's selling, right? When I'm, there's not a huge difference. Um, you know, if you looked at our deck, right. In any company for selling to a customer versus selling to an investor, you know, there's, or to, or to a candidate even, or to a candidate. Exactly. There's 70% overlap in like the slides, like literally the same slides. And so mm -hmm. there's just some other stuff, right. You know, a, you know, you got to have a, you know, a use of proceeds, you know, slide for this one, right. Versus that. So, so there is selling on it. And then, and at the end of the day, that's, um, that's about that. That's about, you know, seeing, you know, what something can become having it be transformative because, you know, life's too short. What's the point of doing any of this stuff if we're not going to do something that's transformative. And then, um, in an area that counts, um, and we'll hopefully we'll talk about healthcare here in a little bit, and and um, and then <laughs> doing it, and then and then and, and and so you know if you have those things, and then you add on the piece, right? I said that that was like, and let's get the best people here as well. I mean, who wouldn't invest in that, right? I mean, yeah, that, that an easy a, a, an easy process, and so um, and so yeah, there is sales involved, but I don't. I don't really look at it as much that way. I suppose it is sales, but I look at it as, as well, no, when you say it's sales, it almost sounds like it's like when I'm talking to some of my team members about the word sales, I think can sometimes have like a yeah. Ugh, yeah. like energy around it. But no, I'm just saying like, cause you've got such mellow, low key vibes. And I do learn a lot about recruiting by asking, even though I've done this for almost 30 years, I really learn a lot about recruiting from CEOs yeah. because most CEOs, it's a huge part of a CEO's job. Huge part. Yeah. When I when I look at, you know, successful CEOs, um, particularly a very large organization. So I, I sold a company um, at one point to Johnson & Johnson, and that was you know, the largest company I've ever been in. I was there for about a year and a half, but I was fortunate enough to be able to interact a bit with uh, the then CEO at the time, Alex Gorski, and the, the new CEO, um, uh, Joaquin Duato there. And, um, you know, these, you know, you mentioned like mellow and things like that. You, I mean, talking to those guys, you would, there is no way you would think that they are running, you know, an $80 billion company that's been mm -hmm. around for 150 years and has 250,000, you know, employees. Uh, um, and I remember Alex telling me one time, he said, you know, at my level, 
every decision is gray. There is there is no right or wrong answer in everything that comes to me because everything else that has a right or wrong answer goes to somebody else. And so right. I, I get the stuff where, you know, it, the, I, I don't know, it could be right or wrong. I just got to do my best to figure it out. You have to just make, yeah, use your gut and information that you can. Yeah. Yeah. And so the point is, is like, if you're not, no. So I think sometimes people can misconstrue. I'm not saying you're doing this, but I think sometimes people like investors, when I'm like raising capital and I've raised a lot of money, will misconstrue when I have these conversations. They'll actually use the word mellow sometimes. They'll be like, oh, you're so mellow compared to like the <laughs> Silicon Valley CEOs we're talking to. And I'm like, look, um, the, again, the people that I've met that are most successful, their mellowness, I think is it one of the things that makes them successful because they don't freak out when something yeah. goes wrong. Yeah. It's going to go wrong at some point but they, you know, stay with the ship and figure it out. And that comes back to, again, my upbringing, um, you know, just being very practical about how you go about things. And how it you could also be like, the word could also be humble. Here you are, you're like pumping out some other kick-ass company. Um, are you like a person who, like, did you try to take a break after that? Like, walk me through your headspace around that acquisition. It was in March, 2018, right? Yeah, so that was uh, that was uh, that was the third one that we had sold, um, and I say we because I've been fortunate enough to develop relationships with people where I can at least usually have one or two of them come on and then come on to the next thing, and uh, and so that was in eighteen, um, uh, and and I didn't I didn't really stop after that, and so that comes back to a, a bit we haven't chatted about yet, but so so I I got into healthcare. Um, I have a daughter who who uh, ended up with a pretty serious illness when she was um, about nine months old. Um, sorry, sorry. Well, it started nine months. It, it kind of peaked at like a year and a half. Um, and once we we so we in our family we stopped everything that we were doing. We stopped all the work. Luckily, I had was in between companies then, so was able to do that and 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 uh, focused on her care. Got her stabilized and. And long story short, she ended up having a kidney transplant when she was three, and and she's doing very wow. well. Uh, she's doing very well now. But I I made a commitment at that point that everything I would do um, was going to be in healthcare. So I've got nonprofit work that I do and for profit work, and but it's all healthcare all the time. And the issue is is yes, um, is just you know, you know the the problem and the opportunity. It's actually a phenomenal space to be an entrepreneur in if you've got kind of you know uh, a more practical you know attitude uh, on, on on life uh because there's it's a target rich environment of tons of problems to solve oh yeah i'm like even where do you even begin and end it's endless yeah and they that require though immense fortitude the reason tech often doesn't work out in healthcare is because people are looking for some quick win to try to move out of something and, and it's just that's not how this world works it's it's, it's serious, it's healthcare. And so, and so, you know, we did a bunch of really good work at Johnson and Johnson, actually at, at the company's called CSAPS that we spent on UW yeah. Johnson. And, and, you know, whenever you sell a company, um, there's financial return, but, but, you know, the thing you really want as entrepreneurs, you want to know that people are taken care of, they have the opportunity to work on at least as cool stuff as they were working before, and then maybe more opportunity beyond that. And that endures, right? So that doesn't just get, get shut down. And, and I'm thankful to say it's, you know, that company now, that technology is one of the lobes of the digital brain at J&J that powers, you know, yeah. smart instrumentation, robotic surgery and things like that. And the people are working on super cool things. And so, and so, you know, 
we we got to a point in that company without going too much detail where we were able to prove uh, we were able to, to 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 prove that we could watch first humans and eventually um, AI could watch a surgeon and how they moved in an interoperative field and we could predict um, near misses and um, complications and readmits and all these things that you know the average person goes through seven surgeries in their lifetime so we all have them wow. and, and there's huge variability in how people operate and what they do and whether or not they even use a standard or a practice. Uh, and, and there's a lot of bad stuff that happens when things go wrong. And so we got to a point where we could, we could, we could, we could predict this stuff and it became used and still is by, you know, half of the largest health systems in the, in the country and in the, in the world's largest, um, uh, healthcare company, Johnson Johnson. Wow. And still, still, that is a tiny, 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 minuscule sliver of what it means to address healthcare in this country. It really only applies in those seven different times in your life when you're going to be in an operating room dealing with something that is so serious that it needs surgery. But healthcare impacts every other aspect of our life from what we eat to what we do to who we, to environments we're in, in, involved in, to the social networks that we're part of, to all these other things. And so that's a very long way of saying like, great, we check off that box, did some cool work in surgery, good exit, all that kind of stuff. But we're just scratching the surface on making it an impact. Um, and so, you know, that just provides the, that, that provides a, an ability to do the next one even bigger, um, but still in this healthcare space. And, um, and we'll probably never touch bottom on it because it's such a big problem in the area to, area to, um, to address, but there's really no, you know, better or worse. There's no, you know, there's, there's really no opportunity, I guess I would say to, to stop, right? Because the yeah. problems persist. Yeah. Well, I'm super inspired by your passion. It's it's incredible. How did the Providence EIR position come about, and how did it um, overlap with COVID? Was it like? Yeah. I know it was 2020. Were we talking like March 2020? Yeah. So <laughs> that was that was interesting. So we sold we sold CSATs in uh, 18. Uh, I was there until. Um, you know, uh, middle of kind of 2019. Um, and, uh, I, I, it was kind of on a nice path and side of change at that point, it didn't really need me, um, the next level there. And, and so then I moved on, um, and I started talking to, uh, at the time, Aaron Martin was, uh, he's since moved back over to Amazon, uh, running healthcare for Amazon, but, um, uh, he was running the digital group at Providence. Providence was a customer of ours uh, at, at at CSATS as well. And so I've known Aaron and that team for uh, quite well. And we just started talking about what's next. Again, like I said earlier, I don't need to be the one with the idea. Um, uh, uh, and so he had this platform that he'd been working on to make, just make care more, more accessible. So talked about surgery earlier, which is a tiny part of healthcare probably the biggest part of healthcare is access, is how do we access healthcare? Um, it, quite literally that word, how do you get access to um, uh, people that can help you, uh, people and resources, facilities, et cetera, that can help you be healthier. And um, and he had an idea for this platform that was gonna try to make care more accessible at Providence. Providence is a $27 billion, 50 hospital, Health system serving seven states. It's, it's a it's a it's a it's a big one in our in our in our country, and um and so it's a great platform to do it. 
Um, so I was intrigued by what they had built there. Uh, they were only using it inside of Providence, but it was um, it, it had some good 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 traction initially. So then I thought, okay, this is another platform to come in and see what they've got going on and see if I could <clears throat> see if there's a business there that we could spin out as something uh, something more more transformative than just inside of health inside of Providence. And so my very first day that we when we finally reached terms was April first of 2020. Oh, uh, yeah, which was like the weirdest day to start a. <laughs> started start something new um but uh you know without going too much into it you know it, it, like a lot of things in healthcare um in a lot of spaces right um pandemic changed things pretty dramatically and in some ways for the better in our case the the for the better way was this understanding realization among consumers and patients and providers and health systems that you could start to virtualize some of this care and more yeah. scale. Yeah. And so, and so they had a platform that just was kind of made for that moment. Uh, I brought in some of my team from CSATs. Um, um, we then spot up, set up a company, co-founded a company along with Providence then to, um, to take this platform then out to other health systems. And now are, um, you know, growing pretty dramatically and working with um, health systems, even larger than, than Providence now to, we 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 help improve care access for our catchment area is about twenty five percent of the U.S. population now at this point, and so it's it's um it's been scaling quite a bit. Oh my god, it's incredible. Okay, so describe to the listeners because I did all sorts of research and I'm pretty obsessed with the company. I got to be honest. Um, describe to the listeners though what the company does because there's so many healthcare like health tech companies out there. Yeah. Um. So describe Dexcare. Um, I know there's like patient access and the yeah. scheduling and all the care coordination, um, but describe what it does. Yeah. So Dexcare, <clears throat> our core platform is a, we call a care orchestration platform for demand in healthcare, which in, which in healthcare means patients, right? That are demanding care um, and supply, which in healthcare means the facilities and providers and, you know, they're supplying care. And so we orchestrate between those two across all service lines, lines of care, which could be things like primary care or surgeries or urgent care, all sorts of things. And then <clears throat> when you go a level deeper, what that means is we work with health systems like Providence or Kaiser or Mass General or a whole bunch of them to take all those ways where they offer care, virtual care and primary care and urgent care, all these things, make it so that you as a consumer or patient uh, can find it a lot more easily online. So you don't need to go to their website. You could be searching for things in Google. You could be on some health website. You could be in a marketplace, et cetera. But you can very easily find care when you're looking for it. Easy link to get to it. <clears throat> and then what we'll do is, as we learn a little bit more about what you what you need and what you're looking for, we'll make sure we're matching you up with uh, those resources that supply those providers and settings and service lines, et cetera, in a way that works well for everybody because part of the, and by everybody, I mean, not just patients, but providers and health system, because part of the, the thing that's really been a disservice to kind of accessing healthcare in this country, there's a lot of things, but one of the things that's been a disservice is um, we tend to, uh, when we think about access in this country, we tend to think of, think of it in terms of like the most common channel, if you will, is I need to see a doctor, especially if it's a specialist, I get a phone number, I got to call a call center and then that call center finds me somebody that's probably booked six months out or whatever to go or six weeks or whatever to get to, to see me. And 
And what we're what we're what we're doing in that situation is we're we're we're, we're literally kind of just matching up a patient and a provider like top down, like that call center person is looking at a their call center and saying, oh, here's the first person that comes up that's available. Well, what that's done is it's created huge imbalances in capacity in this country. And what it means is that the reason we all have to wait so long to see providers is because while we're waiting six weeks or six months to see somebody, there is almost certainly some providers are setting somewhere else that are actually available right now. But the reason they're not available right now is because the health system you know, they're in some service line that's not known to that call center operator or um, uh, uh, no one's done the work to actually see that this particular provider is so burnt out that if they see you, it's going to be a disastrous experience anyway. Or nobody's collected the data to determine that if we matched up with this provider, they could see you in half the time as this other person or maybe get this taken care of virtually instead of in person. And so all of that kind of routing and that matching is, is usually been done in this country by call center operator or sometimes even worse as an individual, you'll go online somewhere and you'll look at pictures of doctors or whatever. And that leads to all sorts of biases and all sorts of things that, that go, go down a bad, a bad path here when really what needs to happen is somebody needs to unify all of this data and say, you know, let's look at everybody that needs help and everybody that can provide help. And then let's, let's, let's predict essentially what the best matches are going to be. So, the person that's going to be best for you may be first available, but it also may be uh, if you just wait another, you know, couple minutes, they can see in half the time. They can do it at half the cost. So it doesn't break the health system. Do it from the comfort of your own home. Blah blah blah, and make sure that everybody is kind of aligned in a way. So now that matches work for the provider, the health system, and the patient. And what the net of all that it gets complicated, Sean, but the net of all that is with the health systems we work with they're able to see now, and these are all health systems that start when they first start working with us, uh, start from the premise of we can't, we don't have enough capacity to see any more patients. We can't help any more people. We got to turn people away. <clears throat> After they work with us, they are able to see about 30% more patients and they're able to increase their capacity about 40% without hiring anybody new because they're able to match better. And what that is, what that means is more people like my daughter get care faster and better as a result of that. And that's the problem we're working on. That's what motivates people to be part of this. Um, and that's why we're- I'm, I'm literally like, okay, I'm quitting fuel. I'm coming over. This is like, this is, it really is transformational and super cool. I did write this down. I'm like, okay, so 30% of the bookings are new patients. Mm -hmm. 90 plus patient net promoter score. That's insane. Mm -hmm. And then some of these other ones that I just didn't understand. So I wanted you to explain them yeah. to me because I like, I obviously I was like, okay, if I don't understand them, I just want to make sure that I understand. Yeah. Some other stats said 350,000 ED hours. What does that mean? Yeah, so Diver that means diverted, is, diverted yeah. annually. So we, we've mean? all been through that, right? Where we're, uh, where we're, um, you know, something comes up. My wife just cut her hand actually a couple weeks ago. We had to go to the ED uh, uh, to be seen. And it's a miserable experience, right? I mean, it's like there's no scheduling appointments. You're just sitting there waiting until you've seen someone comes in with a something more serious. You're going to go to the back of the line. You're going to wait there for hours. In this case, we're able to um, not everything. Obviously, break a leg, you got to go be seen immediately. Um, uh, but but we're able to often find um, uh, opportunities to 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 say, all right, let's let's uh, get you in front of somebody virtually if you don't need to be seen in person. Right now, even though it's midnight right now, but we can do that because we're we do this with Kaiser right now because we're across all 50 states with them. 
We can do that though, because we can actually have you seen by somebody in this other time zone where they are still working and you're not working right now. So you don't have to go to that ED. You can actually take care of that visit uh, because you're being seen by a provider in a different time zone where they are oh, still. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And so now you don't have to go and do that. Yeah. And then what's the eight times downstream revenue? Yeah. So that that's a very nerdy healthcare thing, but it matters. And so what this is, is this is the businessy side of healthcare. So when you... When you, uh, when we get care, um, and most of us get care, you know, most things that happen are not, thankfully, are not like life threatening, right? So they're, we go to a, you know, go to urgent care, um, go to ED, you have to do that, uh, urgent care, you know, kids can't, kid can't shake this cold. So we go to the pediatrician, whatever. Um, most things are like that. Um, sometimes those become the canary in the coal mine that finds something else though that needs to be addressed by a specialist or something more serious. And, and that's important for patients, obviously, uh, so that you get uh, early detection on things. Um, and then it's important for health systems too, because just the business side of healthcare, they make a lot more money uh, when they're taking care of things that are more serious than a stuffy nose, right? Um, but a lot of these organizations, so Providence where we came out of, that's a it's a large faith-based uh, nonprofit, right? So they service as part of their mandate, they serve everybody. Uh, they're not just trying to find patients that, you know, they can make a bunch of money on. That's that's sort of another problem in healthcare. Um, they service everybody. Um, and so the what matters then in those organizations is you need to have a model that allows you to, while you're serving everybody, kind of, you know, shake through it and find the folks that are going to need additional help mm. so that service them as well. Because if you have a, at Providence, they have a saying, and it's a great one, you know, there's no, mar there's no mission without the margin, right? So in other words, if we go out of business, right, that we can't take care of everybody. Yes. And so yeah. you've got to have both. And so like one quick example, I'll give you to make it very tangible. Um, I'm so proud of this. We work with this health system in Indiana, see, uh, Community Health Network. It's one of the larger health systems in Indiana. Um, and, and we handle all of their access for kind of the low acuity care. So again, urgent cares and virtual cares and primary cares. They have clinics in the back of Walgreens or things like that. And um, in working with them, after about a year of working with them, we started looking at um, this downstream that we're talking about, you kind of where, uh, where additional people are needing care. And what we were finding was that, you know, people coming in in these low, these low acuity lines, just st stuffy nose and things like that, about... I think it was like 42%, 42% of um, kind of the, the, think of the sort of the value of additional services coming from those people just coming in with a stuffy nose were going into uh, cancer screenings, oncology. And it turns out that um, Indiana has one of the highest prevalence rates of lung cancer in the country because smoking mm. is very prevalent. Mm. Uh, get outside of Indianapolis and Fort Wayne, it's very rural. Um, and they just hadn't been capturing those patients in those more disadvantaged areas uh, until we started working together. And in doing so, we were able to get ahead of finding now all these patients that needed to be screened. And the whole, the whole game on cancer, especially lung cancer, is early detection. Most people, when they get diagnosed with lung cancer, it's stage four. And wow. In so stage four, that's not a good prognosis. And I'm also seeing, I mean, this is just, this isn't like um, in that same category, but just from a business perspective, just the implementation, it says 90 days versus like on average, it's more like nine months. How are you able to implement 
into the <laughs> systems, into these um, IT systems so quickly. Well, we, and then, yeah, yeah how, how are you able to we, do that? We, we have an unfair advantage there in that, <clears throat> in that, um, and it's one thing that drew me to it, um, uh, was that in coming out of one of the largest health systems in the country, uh, we, there was four years of development put in this to do all mm. of those integrations with, mm. and, and, and this is the thing, this is why I, one of the, one of the reasons, like the business side, um, not the mission side, but the business, the business side of the reason I like being in healthcare is these things are, that are all kind of anathema to the technology world. Um, you know, these barriers, these legacy systems and stuff that if you have the fortitude to get through them and you get on the other side, like, um, like the, your competition gets gets wiped out night night oh night. clearly nobody, nobody wants to do it and so right and so you got to have an unfair advantage and by being in a large health system having years and years of work with a large you know one of the, you know just quite literally one of the largest spenders of all of the different oh yeah electronic medical records and uh, you know customer data systems and so forth our patient data systems out there we're able to then get access to those systems yeah. that you just wouldn't be able to do if you were one of the digital health companies out there. And unfortunately, most, while there's a ton of money going into the space, most digital health companies do not originate in a health system. And so mm. they don't have this access. Yeah. And, oh yeah. And, it's, in, it's incredible. So, yeah. so it's clear to me, obviously I read some of the case studies. It's clear to me you're selling into obviously a lot of these different health, mm -hmm. but how do the patients, like if, if I'm a patient and I'm at home, yeah. how do I find DexCare? Like is yeah, so it you, B to B, B to C? Like I'm confused about Who's the actual yep. end customer? The customer, the buyer is the health system. The okay. users are patients like you and okay. me. Um, we actually distinguish between consumers and patients. Consumer is somebody that's not yet a patient. Patient is you are a patient and you're coming back. Um, but both of them and then the providers as well. Providers okay. could be nurses, could be doctors, could be. So how do I find, like, a, a, how would I find, if I'm not in Seattle and I don't know yeah. Derek and I'm in Chicago? So you will, yeah, you will never see a DexCare brand, but okay. if you're in one of those areas that I mentioned earlier, where about 25% of the U.S. population is, uh, when you see an opportunity to, uh, when you see an opportunity to link over to or click over to urgent care or primary care or even some specialty lines um, or virtual care, and um, and you start going down a path where where one, that care is recommended to you. So you're on their website, the hospital website, let's say, for example, and the first thing that pops up is, is let's say a virtual care option. Even mm. though you don't have care, it's mm. our decision engine that's determining that that's what shows up. That's um, so cool. and, then when you, and then when you get the care, whether it's scheduling an in-person visit or doing the actual virtual, virtual visit, um, if you're in one of those, again, areas, um, like if you're a Kaiser, if you're one of the 12 million Kaiser members, this would be an example. Um, then you're using that virtual platform. It'll all say Kaiser. It'll it's all on the Kaiser, you know, look and feel, et cetera. But that's DexCare powering that. Oh, behind. interesting. So what is like, um, who are your competitors? So we, we uh, it's, a, it's, it's a hard question to answer in healthcare because everything is so, so intertwined. Um, the easiest answer though is we, we compete with legacy systems in the health, the, the legacy technology in the healthcare, in the health system, where IT would prefer just to use what they got and make yeah. it easy. That makes sense, right? Yeah. So that could be an EMR, an electronic medical record vendor. Um, it could be increasingly, it could be like a 
I feel like I'm getting stuff through like charm tracker or um, charm health or something. Yeah. So what, yeah, we, as a, as a, this is sort of the guts of healthcare, but as a consumer or a patient, you wouldn't really see that. Like, like our competitors would be like, uh, would be like, like Epic is a big EMR competitor, EMR company. And by the way, we don't actually compete with them as much as we, we integrate into them and Mm. them. But sometimes um, we, we, just, we just need to do some education, usually with the IT department of the health system to help them understand that these are, these, these are you know, it's a one plus one is three, you know, kind of use our system oh, I see. for your EMR. Yeah. But that takes some education. So it's more of a competition of sort of perception, if you will. Um, in terms of like the digital health companies that um, uh, you'll see in kind of a venture, a list of venture-backed digital health XYZ, um, we really don't run into them much because we're we're kind of at the fundamental level in the health system of making sure that people just get access to care as opposed to, you know, digital health company XYZ that'll, you know, be focused. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff out there, but they'll be focused on, you know, management of your, I don't know, whatever, diabetic condition or whatever. Right. You know. yours, yours is like a broad, um, not marketplace, but it's almost like a con- connector of like making yeah. sure that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, oh, we just it's wanna, we, so we, brilliant. We, we it's just want to make sure that you can get care and the care you need it. And then, yeah. And what's the business the, model? How do you make money? Yeah. So we're an enterprise SaaS company. So the health systems pay us uh, to essentially run. We're we're critical infrastructure inside the health system to run these uh, these 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 access programs. Basically, mm-hmm. they, they pay us, and then the um, uh, and then the users don't 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 pay us. It's all it's all the health systems. And I'm guessing when you lead with, I mean, just even with when what's on your website, just some of the metrics, um, some of the case studies that they're like jumping to get on board. I mean, because you're, there's the ROI for them is so significant. It's a really strong ROI. And um, like a lot of businesses and health systems are businesses at the end of the day, even nonprofits. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenging economic environment for them. They're already kind of low margin businesses. And so having a, hard financial ROI, um, and particularly one that works for everybody, right? If I can see more patients, that's good for patients. And that's, yeah. that's more money to me. Right. And if I can do it more efficiently, efficiently, so I can see more without having to hire more people, that's good. That lowers my cost at servicing each. Um, so it sells really well. The challenge, uh, in being in kind of critical infrastructure inside of health systems is that, um, you know, if you're, if you're in that and we leverage as well, but if you're, if you're, if you want to be in that space, like you better be ready to sign up for like big lifts, right? Because because it's um when you're talking about that level of of kind of scale and scope, um, you've got to do a lot of a lot of heavy lifting. So we have, you know, the 90-day implementation, right, is 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 um is kind of unheard of in healthcare. And that 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 provides a, a ton of advantage. And then we also co-design and co-develop with every one of our customers because there's always and that's a, that's another kind of advantage of ours. You know, there's always when you're talking about an organization like Kaiser, largest health system in the country, there's always something else that they want to do to really push the push the edge here, um, and that they can because, you know, their engineering team is their engineering team alone for digital health applications alone is the size of our entire company. And so when we um, when you when you you work at that kind of that kind of scale, you've got to be you got to be willing and, and able to, you know, kind of go farther beyond where we're even at today to kind yeah. of really on that broader vision. Uh, the good news is that, that if you're willing to do that and we are and step up to that, then that results in, you know, large contract values. And, you know, we, that's why we've got a business that's, 
growing really well and uh, continues to working work with you know more and more customers at higher and higher contract values and and um, have great funders behind us and people that really want to you know want to want to go for this oh it's amazing so tell me a little bit you talked a lot about scale and it's clear that you will continue to scale what makes someone successful at dexcare as far as uh the dna of a strong employee yeah so you've got to have that passion as we talked about it's got to be um, it's got to be for healthcare as well. Um, like I said, this is just a, this is the, this is not the path of least resistance to creating value. <laughs> so it's, it's a, there's a lot of resistance. And so you've got to be there. Um, I, I would say as well, uh, you know, we're continually, you've just, you've got to have, I think, an attitude that you continually want to, um, surround yourself and, 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 and just, be better because of the people around you, right? We just we just don't have a lot of tolerance or time, quite frankly, for you know somebody, you know somebody trying to build a fiefdom or things like that. And obviously, we would never hire somebody that says, "Hey, I want to build a fiefdom." But but you can tell. I mean, you can you know this world better than I do. Like you can tell when you're when you're 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 interacting with somebody. Like you know, are they really open to you know? you know, uh, constructive criticism, open debate, right. Being, you know, kind of execution driven. Um, and, and knowing that like, they're, they're just a, you know, they're just a, a piece of the puzzle that, um, uh, ultimately if we do this right, the puzzle should be even bigger than it could have been when they, when they started. Um, 100%, yeah. you know, and I look at even my role, like, um, uh, um, you know, I've, I've, I've typically only kind of moved out of companies after we've, after we've sold them. Um, uh, but, but that doesn't preclude like, you know, in, in my role, um, you know, if, if we get to a point where, you know, there's somebody else that can, that can even take it farther than I can. Um, I mean, I'm pretty confident in my ability to do it right now, but if we got to that, I mean, I, I care so much about what we're doing that we just, we need to, we need to have people all the way to the top to me that just have the view that this is bigger than us. And right. so we need to keep getting people bigger than us. <laughs> like <laughs> you're like, leave the ego at the door. Yeah. Type of thing. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Exactly. How would you say you set yourself up typically for a good day and then a good week? Do you have some structure there? I would say probably the most important thing is I just, I, I, I try to make it a purpose to ground. You mentioned workout. Um, you know, that's, I think one example of grounding, you know, another is, you know, back to just making sure, you know, spending time with family and doing those kinds of things. I mean, I work a ton, like I'm sure you do and everybody else does that, you know, do, does, does these kinds of things. Uh, but I still make sure that, um, if I'm not traveling that, you know, I'm still, I'm still at home for dinner right now. That may mean that I'm back online, you know, from eight to one in the morning oh, or whatever, but there's still, there's still a time, yeah. right. Where I do think like having that grounding, um, we still take vacations. We still do all these things. Uh, yeah. you know, there is this, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing and you have an opinion on it, right? There is this, it does seem like we've moved from, and I think pandemic has driven this from work-life balance to work-life integration is sort of the, yes. the used a lot more. Okay. My final question for you is what fuels you? Oh, good, good job working you like that, that? Into the, um, little plug. Very well done. Yeah. You know, um, it's, I know it's coming back to a bunch of stuff, but it's, it's just, it's, it's the problem, right? I mean, it's, um, 
I mean, I, I like, I, I personalize, and I tell the team this too, like I personalize this work immensely. Like I, I, in my daughter's situation now, um, unfortunately the, 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 the standard of the state of the art for, if you've got a solid organ transplant, not just kidneys, is that you're, you're on a, you're on a, a, a therapy regimen, a meta, a cocktail that, that, um, simultaneously, you know, keeps your body from attacking the organ as a foreign object. And, and, and at the same time, uh, kind of eats away at the organ as well as toxic to the organ as well. And that's just the best they got right now. Someday we'll 3d print organs that are compatible and won't have to worry about this, but not, not yet. And so, so it's a little bit of a time bomb, right? And so I know, I mean, we're still high, high utilizers of healthcare in our family. Um, mm -hmm. We were just there this morning. And so, and, and so, you know, I, I look at like, so she's going to need more surgeries and even though she's going the organ, she's only 16. Um, uh, she's going to need, you know, continual management, you know, scariest time for a, for a, a parent of a medically complex child is, is right at this age, because this is the age where, you know, they don't want to take their meds and this kind of stuff and go off to college and all that kind of stuff, yes. right? That's yes. where things, bad things happen. And so, and so I personalize all this stuff. Um, uh, because I, I, I truly, truly believe Sean, and I saw this on my last company on the surgery side, like it, there's a time I just, I, there's a time where I know like it's going to be because we did this thing, it makes it a little bit better for her. And so that's, that's super motivating. It also, I sit on the boards and I, I co-founded and chair, um, um, some of the leading, um, kind of data sharing networks and peds around the country right now, where, uh, where we're just continually making sure that the, the leading centers around the country are sharing best practices and, and, and implementing best practices in order to uh, make care better at the bedside. It's just like, I want her to have better care and it's going to, I just, I, I know it's going to result in that if we stick to this. And, and I also know it's we just like have to, I mean, I'm her dad. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. 